Chapter 2 Birchville, Alabama had its own origin story. So entwined with my grandmother's that there was no way to tell one without the other. The town itself was founded by Birchie's grandfather, Ethan, an eldest son of an old Charleston shipping family who had acted as blockade runners in the Civil War. They kept their money safely overseas, surviving the late unpleasantness the Depression era with their fortune in, intact. If not for their reputation, their newly destitute social circuit had small appreciation for Southerners who had chosen prudence over patriotism. By 1874, Ethan, who had been a child during war, was chafing under the uncomfortable combination of wealth and old God's condemnation. He wanted a fresh start, and he was not the only young man in Charleston who felt that way. He felt, after taking several sons from old families with him, a Darian, an Alston, and two of the impoverished Mac boys. The Macs had sunk all their money into Confederate government bonds. That family especially was so bitter that it penetrated the bloodline, genes deep. Ethan founded Birchville on the bones of a burned-out Alabama town that had lost its charter in the war. He rebuilt the church first and perched a big white Victorian house on the hill across the road. When both buildings were finished, he sent back to Charleston for his girl to marry her in one and to move her into the other. My great-grandfather, Ellis Birch, was born in that house and my grandmother was born inside it too. At 9 a.m. on any given Sunday, Birchie was, would be sitting at her formal dining table in that very house watching her town wake up through the big bay window behind her on either side of the doorway to the kitchen. Portraits of her grandfather and her father flanked her, watching their own town as well, stern and benevolent. Ethan looked proud. After the fashion of portraits in his day, Ellis looked even prouder. Plus, he had those creepy Uncle Sam eyes that seemed to roam around the room. I had never liked eating in the dining room under his painted gaze, but it was a large day. Butchie would never, never eat a Sunday meal in the cozy breakfast nook, then she would take up Prancerize. I could imagine her there, spine ramrod straight, ankles crossed, eating her egg and sipping her coffee with Watty Price, her bosom friend. I didn't have to imagine all the wretched events that awaited among them across the street in Birchville. It was the first, Birchville first Baptist on this particular Sunday morning. I would love to see the whole story unfolding in my head from hundred different angles because each church member who was present and you and, and a few who weren't would tell me all the other gory details. As the church bells pealed 10.15, Birchie and Watty linked arms to careful their way down the wide steps of the front porch. Those two little old ladies, round and soft and short and fragile, looked like a match set of salt and pepper shakers as they toddled down the hill toward First Baptist on schedule and as timely as the tides. Birchville's population was a little smaller and skewed a little older than when I was growing up, 
but there was still a fam family of Darians, plenty of Alstons, and a slew of Max who lived in the town. However, my grandmother was the only remaining Birch, and all the other old family names were the members of the First Baptist. As Birchie and Watty made this stately way up the left side aisle, folks cleared a path, offering smiles, offering greetings. Birchie took it as her due, pausing only to exchange a speaking glance with Watty as Martina Mack clomped up her other aisle in her enormous Sunday hat. It plugged the view, perched high and bright red over Martina's iron, iron grey witch scraggles, but Martina would neither remove it nor move back. She had to sit in the second row, right side, exactly opposite Birchie's pew. Watty's knees were bad, so Birchie helped her settle before sitting down herself, and quite a few folks in the congregation looked away. There were folks at church who could not seem to remember that Miss Watty did not work for Birchie. Watty had never worked for us, in fact. That was Watty's mother, Veena. She had been Birch's housekeeper. When Birch's old, own mother child died in childbirth, Veena had ragged, rocked Birchie, taught her songs, tucked her, for tucked her in for naps in the kitchen playpen. She still had milk from her youngest boy, so Veena breastfed Birchie with her own body. And a year or, a year or so later, Watty came along to join my grandmother, and they had bonded deep as sisters. The two of them had put up jam together every August of their lives in that kitchen as babies watching, as helpers too little to be truly helpful, as young girls, as married ladies, and eventually as jam masters who regularly took multiple ribbons at their county fair. Around 12 years ago, I started worrying about Birchie living all alone in that big house full of staircases with her bad balance and worse eyesight. I wanted her to move to Virginia into an assisted living apartment near my house, but she would have none of it. Meanwhile, Watty's husband has pa had passed, and both her sons lived far, Stephen in Chicago, Sam in Houston. They were worried too. Watty's house was on an isolated road, road outside town. She drove herself into Birchville almost every day, with less and less regard of what, what lay in her car was in. She and Birchie would sit out on the porch in fine weather or in front of the living room's wide windows when it rained. They would knit and talk and supervise town life. It was a relief for all of us when Watty failed her driver's test and came to live with Birchie in the big Victorian. They would walk to the beauty parlor, the library, three restaurants, the yarn shop. The Piggly Wiggly didn't have a delivered service per se, but for Emily Birch Bricks, the groceries got delivered. The longer they lived together, the more symbiotic they became. Church had been their last amalgamation. On paper, Wadi was still a member of the Redemption, the all-black Baptist church near her house. But she kept her membership at the First Baptist too. But for years now, they had gone to services together, half the time walking to First Baptist, half the time being dri driven to redemption by one of her deacons. This was her first Baptist week, and they bent their heads over their shared church bulletin until the service started. Birchie took tidy notes in the margins of her order of worship, uptight and attentive. 
giving Miss Watty small, decorous nods when the preacher got it right, frowning slightly when he got it wrong. They were very few nods. Miss Watty remained stoic. Her large, heavy-lidded eyes hardly seemed to blink, but a close observer would notice that her full lips clamped in tandem with every birchy head shake. The Reverend Richard Smith was new to the church and was very young and was prone to passionate sputtering among beatitudes. He told everyone to call him Pastor Rick or sometimes when he mentioned hell, it almost sounded like he was putting air quotes around the word. Worse, there were no detectable air quotes when he mentioned dinosaurs. Neither Birchie nor Miss Watty could approve of him. The old pastor, the properly powder-dry fellow of their generation, had died. Instead of promoting Jim Campbell, the blandly handsome, middle-aged under-pastor, the church had called this new boy. He had, been brought, he had been born respectably enough in Alabama, but he had gone to Golden Gate Seminary out in California. As far as I could tell, they returned him with his high school Southern Baptist doctrinal stick-in-the-butt still firmly lodged. But he also owned a pair of man sandals and did not eat red meat. Worse, he had alternatively coaxed and needled every single Baptist member onto Facebook. Even Birchie and Watty had signed up, strictly as a kindness though. He had betrayed their own goodwill gesture by making the church newsletter completely virtual. To save trees, he said, but it meant they actually had to learn to turn on the computer I had gotten them. To my grandmother, all this meant was that he was free from California now and he was practically Babylon, the setting of thousand movies about fornication that she flat refused to see. And he sweats when he preaches, Virgie had told me on the phone. And and in her small, pursed voice, sweats sounded like a curse word. I'm sure he can't help it, I told her. He most certainly could. The church had air conditioning, Bertie should know, as she had single-handedly paid to install it in 1970s when she was going through the change of her life. The pulpit was right under the vent, but he won't preach from it, Whitey chimed in. They were on speakerphone. They had always liked to have a share in each other's conversations, but over the past couple of years, they had used the speakerphone more and more often. These days, they took every call in tandem. It happened so gradually that I had thought nothing about it. He puts on his head like a pop star, waving his arms around and jogging back and forth. It's true, Birchie confirmed. I feel like I'm watching that the communist fonda girl on her tacky aerobic tapes with all her gyrations splashed across those uh, screens. Everybody's using screens, you all, I told them. And no one watches tapes, or does aerobics for that matter. I heard a skeptical, hmm, but didn't know if it was Beachy or Miss Watty. They only put lyrics on that screen, Watty said. How can people sing without the notes? Birchie said, I swan, Louis Garney has not been on key once the screens went up. He says the hymnals were getting ratty, 
but I offered to replace them twice. I understood from her tone, or anybody would have, that Miss Birchie's considerable resources had not been available to help her with the installation of screens. All this change, notwithstanding, Birchie was happy in her pew. Today, the church was holding the summer kickoff fish fry on the lawn. It was a tradition as long-standing and almost as venerated as Birchie herself. As a kid, I'd been to it every year. I'd spent every childhood summer down in Birchville. I wasn't a football fan or fish the Kusa River sort, but I'd always loved Birchville anyway. Birchie brought me chalk in every color. I'd draw comic strips a block long, every sidewalk square a panel. She'd made Batman and Star Wars patterns on graph paper to entice me to learn needlepoint and I'd, and I'd needed no reward but the pie to want Watty to teach me how to make her perf- perfect crust. She and Watty together sewed me a new Wonder Woman costume every year. I was allowed to run all over the town wearing it, acting out super friends with local kids until I heard Birchie ringing the perch, perch bell that called me inside home for supper. In Norfolk, I could only imagine wearing it in, my, in the house. It embarrasses Rachel, my mother told me, her pink cheeks testifying that Rachel was not alone. For me, summer began the taste of catfish rolled in cor- cornmeal and coarse salt served up crisp and smoking hot on paper plates with sweet tea in Dixie cups, iceberg and cherry tomato salad drenched in homemade ranch dressing, cheese grits, fried okra, huge wedges of icebox pie for after. That meal was still the very taste of freedom to me. This year, it was drizzling outside, a thing Miss Birchie's prayers had not allowed to happen for fridge on fish fry Sunday for decades, probably God weighing in on Pastor Rick. But there was no cancelling or postponing the fry. The youth group boys simply crowded the tables into the fellowship hall. As Miss Birchie and Miss, w- Miss Watty came in arm and arm, Pastor Rick was there to greet them. Now there's no need for you ladies to wait in the line. Come have a seat. We'll bring you plates. That's one thing he got right. No grandmother-aged lady or pregnant woman had to ever stand in line at a church social. Pastor Rick walked Birchie and Miss Watty over to his own table, already packed with deacons, and associate prior Campbell and his wife Myrtle. But Birchie took the seat from across Frank Darian, her lawyer who lived and worked out the big blue house next two doors from Birchie's. He was the only man at the table who wasn't part of the church leadership. But his wife, Jean Anne, was the children's minister. It was a part-time job involving hand puppets and therefore open to women. Pastor Rick came back and set the paper, paper plates down in front of, each of, front of each of them and saying, Here we go, here we go. His wife was right behind him with the drinks and napkins. The plates were wrong though. No catfish, no fried okra, no iceberg salad. Instead, there was what looked to Miss Birchie like something ready to be mailed. A rectangle of parchment paper tied in a string. Well now, what's this? Miss Watty asked. It's salmon. It's wrapped 
and steamed with fresh, fresh herbs and spring vegetables. Pastor Rick said, a moment of silence. Wadi Rick, Wadi turned to whisper something, her lips almost touching Bertie's ear. A lot of Bertie's conversations happened with Miss Wadi whispering to her in full profile, Wadi's breath stirring the snowy fluff of tendrils that day escaped Bertie's bun. It was so common a sight these days that no one thought anything of it. Not right then. But this was the fish fry, Miss Bertie said, emphasis on fry. It's called salmon epapillote, Pastor Rick said. That sounds French, said Perchie darkly, but poor Rick missed the tone. Yes, yes, it's French and so much more healthier. Perchie looked like she might say more, but Wadi stayed, stayed close, her voice, a breathy background noise, soothing Perchie down. After a moment, Perchie's sparse lashes dropped and she said, well, let's try it then. Miss Wattie turned to face her own pocket. Her full lips compressed into a wide, f- flat line. She calmed Birchie, but she made no move to try this wrongful, hood, f- wrongful foot herself. Birchie peeled down the wrapping to reveal a pile of bright green asparagus and a few cherry tomatoes, this, their skins wrinkled from the steam. Her mouth pursed and pruned into a dot, the exact opposite shape of Wattie's, but expressing the same feeling. Pastor Rick turned to Jean and Darian. Did you find your last volunteers for your nurse duty at VBS? Jean and started to chirp an answer, but Birchie talked over her. Is there no cornbread? Well, no, we thought carbs are... Um... Pastor Rick began unhappily and Birchie overspoke him too. And still, yet no biscuits? There might be crackers in the pantry there, he offered. This is nonsense, Miss Birchie said, and Miss Wattie leaned again to whisper. Wattie had prevented more than one hyperpolite evisceration in her time, but no biscuits was too much. And Birchie turned to her and said, No, Wattie, don't do. In the wake of this soft-spoken utterance, the table quieted. Pastor Rick was new, but even he understood the power of these words, spoken by the reigning Birch in Birchwell. He was all, almost cringing with propitiation. You should try a bite of these before you judge. It's so healthful and delicious. I know you'll like it if you give it a bite. Birch inclined her head away from Wadi's calming whispers. She pushed, pushed aside the vegetables with her plastic fork digging in to find the salmon. It was shiny with olive oil and tomato juice, dotted with bits of black pepper and herbs. Oh dear, no, I can't possibly eat that, she said, her voice gone dangerously sweet. Sweet as icebox pie, sweet as sugar tea. Wattie leaned in closer. Her whisper was urgent now, but Birchie talked over her, blue eyes bright in her powdered face. It looks like Pastor Campbell's penis, all pink and freckled, and she started laughing. The delivery was so prim and cheerful that it took several seconds for the words she said to register. Deacon Lesser choked. He stifled himself, trying to asphyxiate quietly in his dawning shock silence. Anna Gentry spilled her icy sweet tea down her blouse and didn't so much as squeak. John and Darian 
paused with her bite of fish halfway to her lips, her eyes bugging in her pretty pop-dog face. It didn't seem possible that Emily Birch Briggs would say the word penis or acknowledge the existence of such a thing. Had a six-foot phoenix gone running down the church lawn on legs and everyone would have expected Miss Birchie to go completely blind in a six-foot penis-shaped blotch right at the center of her field of vision. Lovely sunset, she might remark, peering through it like God's glorious vistas. But now she had acknowledged the existence of genitalia in the fellowship hall. Worse, she had said it out very loud that Associate Pastor Campbell had a set. She had described it in such great detail that it seemed likely that she had met the member in question, which was purely, purely unthinkable. Sweat popped on Pastor Rick's forehead and all the deacons were gaping. Pastor Campbell, hearing his essential self so maligned, opened and shut his mouth several times with no words or even breath coming out. What he, the only unshocked person in the room, stood up and said, Birchie, we need to go home now. Miss Birchie poked disdainfully at the fish with her plastic fork, saying, Well, that does it, what he. Asked John Anne. She had seen that penis much, much closer. Hardly the assigned use for the coir robe room, though I suppose that's not for me to say. The air, already shocked and sparking, began fully live with electricity. The whole room went so quiet that folks nearby could hear what he fears whispering to Birchie. Get up, get up, we need to go. As if a current were running through around the room, the congregation had came to understand one by one what Birchie said as a matter of factly describing and they stared at my grandmother in shocked horror. Birchie knew every sin in town after all, but she heard gossip the way Queen heard supplicants. She never discussed what town called news with anyone but Watty. Instead, going directly and privately to the first Baptist sinners like the Apostle Paul, except his homemade soup. Her stern encouragements to put away wrath, teeth properly, or to stop the coveting of the people's wife who were done behind closed doors. Birchie was the scion of decency. And these words from her were as shocking as the idea of adultery itself. All the horror was focused on my grandmother, right up until Jean Anne blushed. Not a delicate blush either, the sort any lady might have touch her cheek when such vivid language landed uh, at the lunch table. This was a crimson shame wash that started at the forehead and didn't even end at the throat. Her chest reddened in the V of her light-knit top. Her skin became the scarlet backdrop for the glistening pink and pepper-freckled bite of fish she suddenly held at the portal of her glossy lips. She saw it then, how she had seen that morsel an inch away from ingestion and threw it violently away. The fork landed with a sad plastic clatter, followed followed by an unfortunate plopping as the fish hit the table. Whispers started at the closest of the table to Birchie's center one, spreading outside like a rustling tide. Frank Darien was the last to come to understanding. It wasn't until his wife shoved 
her chair back and stood up from her table that his expression changed from shocked to something awful, a disbelief, a pre-pain wondering. Jean Anne, he said, and she walked away. Jean Anne? She didn't turn or falter, but kept twisting through her tables as if whispers wilted and roiled around her. But she watched her, watch her go, eyes over bright, an incongruous smile on her, on her face, watching her verbal wrecking ball smash two key church marriages. But he stood helpless beside her, no longer whispering. Her urgency was gone. She seemed oddly resigned, patting at the silver-white zigzags of her short hair, as if putting them in order was her main concern. How could you? Associate Pastor Campbell rasped at Percy. She, he stood up, his chair scrapping back, and slapped his hands down hard at the table. He leaned toward her, threatening almost and raged again. How could you? His wife whispered, How could you? But he still didn't, didn't seem to hear her. Budgie, what he said, calm and firm. I need your help. But Budgie was scraping her own chair away, rising to her full five feet to glare right back at Campbell. Don't you dare your raise your voice to me, you humping goat. I will turn you over my knee and paddle your saggy ass. But she said, the tone was right, frosty and imperious. But the words, these were not the words that Emily Birch Briggs would ever, ever say. And they were followed by a high-pitched, crazy titter. Pastor Campbell stepped back, away from the confusing sound, his face registering equal parts rage and disbelief. Then he seemed to notice his wife, crying in the chair next to him. What he waited it out, standing beside Birchie under her awful and until her awful cackle stopped. Then what he touched Birgie's arm, and Birgie turned to her as if she had delivered, as if she had discovered her there. Did you, did you, did you see, did you, did you see his saggy ass, Watty? Did you see it? Birgie said, and then mimed humping at the table. Three hundred of the faithful sat frozen, watching Emily Birch Briggs having a mental breakdown, and only what he spoke. I surely did. But Birchie, Mercy Lester is splicing up peppers by the hush puppy batter, she said. Birchie's avid face clouded in confusion, but she stopped her obscene rocking, at least. A few years back, Mercy Lester had put the fry on the high road to apo apostasy when she tried to add cheese and jalapenos to her hush puppy batter. Birchie had spotted her before they, they got mixed in. While Miss Watty scooped the offending ingredients off the top, Birchie had put, put a forgiving arm around Mercy's shaking shoulders, like Jesus sheltering the woman caught in adultery. It looked like that. Instead of asking her for a sinless someone to cast the first stone, Birchie had reminded the outraged congregation that Mercy had raised to Presbyterian before marrying Davy Lester. Could anyone expect her to know better? To bring it up now was such non-sequitur that it looked if Watty was losing her mind right along with Birchie. But Birchie said, Lord, that girl, let's go and stop her. As though Mercy and Davy hadn't moved to Montgomery three years ago. Her face, stony and unreadable, Watty began guiding her out.
Well now, now, well now, Pastor Rick floundered. As the two of, them, two of them made their slow way out of the hall, the congregation came one by one into its clarity. Miss Waddy's whispered soothings and asides had long hidden a crumbling at Birchie's center. It was unthinkable. Miss Birchie, as they all call her, smelt like rose petals and history. She was the last Birch living in Birchville, 90 years old, but still with her perfectly erect spine, her interested eyes, her ancient collaboration of very nice handbags for so many of them. Miss Birchy was the town, the idea of the town. She was the avatar of the town, as it used to be in some old South utopia that only existed if you were white and well-to-do and Baptist and didn't notice who weren't all those things affair. Even before they made it out of the room, people were starting to text me. Once the door started closing behind them, they started calling me as well. I didn't answer. By that time, it was already past noon and I was on my way to Rachel's house. My phone was turned off and my mind was made up. I was ready to bat my bat bomb after all. And I was praised for the kaboom.